kind words of welcome tonight, and it's good to be here and to join with you around the Word of God. It's good to be uh, back here in person after a few years of online uh, preaching. Uh, it's always good to be in person. Um, we, um, uh, I'm Free Presbyterian, and we have a minister's week of prayer, pastor's week of prayer always in January. And it was, uh, uh, we had online prayer meetings the last couple of years, and it was really good to get back uh, to the in person. You really uh, felt what you had uh, lost and what you'd missed uh, in uh, not meeting together in fellowship. But it's good to be here. And I will, let's just turn, please, to the uh, first chapter of Zechariah. And I want to get on with this tonight because. I've been trying to cut down the material, and even before the meeting, we're trying to cut it down, but there's still a lot in this chapter. And we'll just bow before the Lord and seek His help and His blessing as we come uh, to consider His Word. Our loving God and our gracious Father in heaven, we thank Thee that we can meet together around Thy Word afresh. We thank Thee that we do come to the inspired word of the living God. We thank thee for the words that come uh, that are not only for the day in which they were written, but Lord, we thank thee that there are these prophecies that stretch right to the end of the age. And we thank thee, Lord, for uh, the revelation that we are given. We'd ask thee that thou give us wisdom and understanding even in these things, we pray that thou wouldst give help even in the preaching of thy precious word tonight. And even as we gather around thy word, we pray that thou wouldst speak. Bless thee, uh, sovereign grace and testimony. We thank thee for the witness and we rejoice, O God, in the word that goes forth month by month and then over the internet and by the magazine by the literature and we pray our God that thou wouldst continue to bless and undertake in these days. Be with us our God as we gather round thy word tonight, draw us nigh to thee, for it is in Jesus' precious name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. The book of Zechariah is set at the time when the captivity of the children of Israel had come to an end, the people had returned from Babylon. They had entered into the work of rebuilding the temple. Uh, the prophet Zechariah is contemporary with the prophet Haggai, their post-exilic prophets. And Zechariah, whose name means he whom the Lord remembers, is a central figure in the post-exilic world and amongst the prophets. His voice is the last but one of the wonderful succession of men that God spoke through who uh, at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers. And like Jeremiah and like Ezekiel, uh, he, among the major prophets, Zechariah has an honourable priestly descent. His father, I know, being the head of one of the twelve priestly families or courses, 
uh, who returned from Babylon with Zerubbabel the high priest, uh, or Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. And we think of how it seems here as if Zechariah had, uh, had uh, followed his grandfather uh, as the head of the priestly course. It looks as if Berechiah was passed over, possibly had died. And it seems as if Zechariah had come to that office as a very young man. If you look at chapter 2 verse 4, he's addressed as a young man. And the word for young man there means lad or youth. So he uh, seems to have been very young even at this time. And both Haggai and Zechariah returned from the Babylonian captivity around the year 538 BC. Uh, we think of how the uh, city of Jerusalem had been destroyed onto Nebuchadnezzar. They had been carried into 70 years of captivity. But now the captivity was over. They rebuilt the altar. Uh, one of the first things that they did was to rebuild the altar. And then they laid the foundations for a new temple. And if you look at the opening verse uh, of Zechariah, Zechariah is very specific about when he wrote his vision. He says, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechai, the son of Ido, the prophet. Uh, this was five months after the resumption of the work. And you know maybe the story of the prophet Haggai, or that Haggai gives how that the work then is interrupted. There is a conspiracy against the people, and they seem to they, they uh, were um, lied against really. But the work of God and the building of the temple came to an end. And Haggai comes really with words of rebuke. To the people. You think of his message. Is a time oh, uh, for you oh ye, to dwell in your seed houses. And the ho this house lie waste. Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. They were building their own houses. And the work of the building of the temple. Was lying in neglect. It wasn't wrong for them to build their own houses. But it was wrong for them uh, to have that emphasis and to let the work of God lie waste. And notice what we are told here in verse 13. It says, The angel what talked with me with good words and comfortable words. Now we say that Haggai came with words of rebuke. Zechariah now comes with words of comfort. He comes with words of encouragement. And that uh, verse there really you could say is the uh, key verse. When we were in college we went through Zechariah with Dr. Douglas. And this was one of the things that he emphasised. That this is the key to the book of Zechariah. They are good words and comfortable words. And you think of the message that he comes with. And the both messages are something that we need. Times we need the message of rebuke, but then sometimes we need the message of encouragement. And sometimes we need to encourage our hearts in the Lord our God. 
and the rebuke and the encouragement are both two sides of the one coin. But here he comes and he wants to encourage the people to get back into the work and to be involved in the work that was lying to their hands. And so he comes now with eight night visions. The good words and the comfortable words are contained in these eight uh, visions that are given in one night is the 24th day of the 11th month of 520 BC in the Hebrew word uh, month Sabbath there the um, Darius here is the king of Persia and the visions that are given here are prophetic visions we think of these messages they're apocalyptic messages and he starts from the point of view of the more immediate future, uh, future and then he brings to the climax in chapter 14 and verse 5 where he says the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee and he says that when the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day shall there be one Lord and his name one so the visions though they are distinct in themselves are a whole and they grow uh, they uh, give the picture of the future of Israel and the close and the ultimate completion of the kingdom so tonight we're going to look at the first two of the visions that we have in chapter 1 there is the vision of the man among the myrtle trees and then the vision of the four carpenters and the, we think of the vision of the myrtle trees there, that's peace among the nations of the earth. And the vision of the four carpenters speaks of judgment of the nations for their evil. So first then, let's just come to the uh, vision here of the horsemen or the man among the myrtle trees. If you look at verses 7 to 17 there and we said this is a vision of peace among the nations of the earth look at verse 11 it says and they answered the angel of the lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said we have walked to and fro through the earth and behold all the earth sitteth still and is at rest so there is rest there is peace among the nations the heathen nation the gentile nations are at rest and you'll see that israel is under the indignation of god uh, if you look at verse 12 then the angel of the lord answered and said o lord of hosts how long wilt thou not have mercy on jerusalem and on the cities of judah against which thou hast had indignation these Three score and ten years. Now here we have the historical reference. Israel, of course, as we've said, had been under the 70 years of captivity. But at the end of this vision, you'll see that God is going to restore the kingdom of Israel again. There's the historical reference, but also there is the prophetic reference and this is a reference as to how god will deal with uh, israel at the end of the age but let's look at the parts of the vision look at the text there in verses 7 
and 8. It says there, in the uh, going down into it, he, he says, Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sebat, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ivor the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him there were three, there were red horses, speckled and white. So the vision is very simple. There it is, here he is in the night, and in prophetic ecstasy, he gets a vision. It's not a dream, it's a vision. And he sees a man on a red horse standing in the midst of a shady myrtle grove. And the grove here speaks of a shady place, a dark shady grove. And he's aware of this wonderful picture of the myrtle trees. And there's a man mounted on the red a white or on a red horse, and he's followed by a troop of three beings. And you see the colours of the horses there, red and bay, or red and brown, and then the white. And there he is, and he's in the midst of the myrtle trees. Now, as we look at this vision, I want you to pick out, first of all, the man of the message. You see, here we have a vision of Christ. Notice the person of the vision. You look at the red horse here, and you see the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If you look at verse 11 and 12, you'll see that the one who is among the myrtle trees is none other than the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a Christophany. And this angel of the Lord is seen a number of times. In Genesis 16, he appeared to Hagar when she was slain from her mistress. He appears to Abram in Genesis 22. We think of uh, the burning fiery furnace and how the angel of the Lord was with the uh, three men in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And this is the centre of the vision. And you'll notice how the prophet says here, Behold a man riding upon a red horse. He wants us to see the man here in the midst. And here is the children of Israel, and in the midst of difficulty, they have um, felt the difficulty in the stopping of the work of God, and there had been pressure uh, upon them, and it speaks here of the shady place, and it's in the dark of night, but in the midst of all of that, he says, Behold a man, and you know in the midst of all of our difficulties as the people of God in that age and in our own age, we uh, can see the vision of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the good words and comforting words. Here is the encouragement that we need. And it's easy to get our eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy to get our eyes upon ourselves and our weakness and the fact that the numbers mightn't be big and all of these things and we can be discouraged and we can be cast down. 
But the first thing that we need to do is what uh, Zechariah was called to do. Behold a man. And when we can see the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see one who is able to do mighty things. We think of what it says. When we're uh, the writer of the Hebrews speaking of the Christian race and our Christian walk, he said, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And here he comes now as the mediator with a message. He comes to bring a message to men. Here that we're in difficulty. He comes to bring the message. And what a wonderful thing. How condescending that our great God, our Saviour, comes with a message to us. He speaks to us in our waywardness and our sin. And when we don't look to him and we forget to look up, he comes and he wants us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face. So we notice the person of the vision. The first thing in the days of darkness is to get our eyes on Christ. But look also at the period of the vision. He says, I saw by night and behold a man. As we said, this is a series of nine visions uh, that Zechariah has given in the book here. And of course, the night there is symbolic of the dark. Um, he wanted to bring encouragement to these people. But there's darkness <coughs> all around. And the Lord always wants to break into the darkness and to bring the ray of light. We think of Job 12 and verse 22. He discovereth deep things out of darkness and bringeth out to the light the shadow of death. The psalmist said in Psalm 18 and 28, For thou wilt light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Think to Psalm 112 and verse 4, Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. And maybe we are instructed in darkness. We think of the children of Israel here in darkness. And on this um, Holocaust Memorial Day, we will be thinking about the children of Israel as we go along here. But, you know, we think of the darkness of the day in which we live. And it was dark for Zacharias, dark for the children of Israel. But my, the Lord comes even in the midst of the darkness. We see the man of the vision. But then notice the matter of the vision. Look again at verse 8. He says, I saw by night, and behold a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees. And you see the vista that is portrayed here, uh, provided by our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He looks and he sees the man on the red horse and then the three uh, angelic beings here uh, on red and bay and white horses in the midst of the grove of myrtle trees in a valley or in a bottom. So the place where the man is riding the red horse 
He's standing here. He's among the myrtle, myrtle trees. Myrtle, of course, is an evergreen tree. We're very common one time in the vicinity of uh, Jerusalem. There used to be many uh, myrtle trees in the lowest part of the Kidron Valley. But the myrtle tree is taken by most of the commentators to represent Israel. And if you want to prove that, we think of Isaiah 55 and verse 13. Now, let, turn over to it. I, I know how much stuff I have to get through tonight, so I'm not turning to some of these. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 55, and if you look at verse three, 13, sorry, instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And in the future, Israel will no longer be the briar bush. Isaiah says that Israel will be the myrtle tree. Or again, Isaiah 41, and if you look at verse 19, uh, you'll see another reference to the myrtle, Isaiah 41. And if you look at verse uh, 19, he says, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shitter tree, and the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together. And you can see here, there is the reference to the myrtle. But what a wonderful picture this is. It's not a tall cedar. It's not a stately cedar. It's a small fragrant myrtle and it's thought to be lowly but it is fragrant and it has this beauty even in the shade as we say the myrtle trees it says he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom now where it says the bottom it means the bottom of the valley or in a shady place it could be translated to so and this is night and the myrtle trees are in the bottom of a valley. So it's not only night, but this is in a shady place. We're looking at something that's in the shade. And here was this plant that grows in the midst of the shade. And you figure there's a clump of cedar, and all around is desolate, and all around is dark. But my the cedar's tree is still there. And the myrtle trees are there. Of course this speaks of the degradation of Israel. And of course Israel historically, not only here in the captivity, but historically has been brought low. You think of Esther, the book of Esther, and how there was the attempt of Haman to uh, obliterate the Jews. We think of anti-Semitism that there has been down through history in 432 AD. They were preventing, prevented from appearing as witnesses against Christians in uh, 531. They were prevented. They were uh, 539. They were prevented from holding position in government. 531. They were prevented from standing as witnesses against. Uh, Christians, you think of the um, blood libel that was de de devised by Thomas of Wentworth in 1150. They blamed the Jews 
they said that they were involved in ritual murder of Christians and the bubonic plague was blamed on the Jews and we come down to the Holocaust and World War II and as I say this is Holocaust Memorial Day and there has been anti-Semitism. The Labour parties had problems with anti-Semitism in recent days and we wonder how it exists still to this day and yet Israel has been pressed down. They're in a shady place, they're in a bottom and like a fragrant myrtle tree, there they are standing in the midst of that. And you think of the Jew today, they don't really bemoan their lot. Yes, they highlight the Shoah, the Holocaust, and quite rightly as they do, but they get on with things. They uh, try to make their lot uh, one that can be usable. They're, they're innovative, they contribute to the world. But they are like the fragrant myrtle tree in the midst of the dark valley. And the dark valley will continue for them until the end of the day of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles will, of course, conclude at the appearing of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we notice how that they have continued. And notice how the prophet then speaks about the red horse was speckled and white. They're mentioned in verse 8 there. He, uh, the angel of the Lord explains, These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro to the, through the earth. And look at verse 11. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth. And behold, all the earth sitteth still in and is at rest. So here he's saying, This is night. And the angel of the Lord comes and the message is the nations of the world are at rest or they're at peace. But that's not a good message. Not a good message for the Jewish people. Oh, you think, well, the message of peace, that the world's at rest, that's a good message. But it wasn't a good message for the Jews. Why? Well, you think, turn back a page or two to Haggai's prophet, prophecy. And the, you, as I said, Haggai is contemporary with Zechariah. And the minds and the hearts of the people would have been filled. They would have known the message that Haggai had brought. And you, uh, he, they knew uh, Haggai's prophecy. And Haggai had come with the prophecy and he speaks, uh, Haggai uh, there, uh, he speaks of the time when the Lord will come and shake the earth. Um, chapter 2 verse 21 there, speak, or, oh, uh, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. And I will overthrow the chariots. And those that ride them. And the horses and their riders shall come down. Every one by the sword of his brother. And there is the time when God says, I will shake the earth. Look at chapter 2 verse 6. Yet once it is a little while. And I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations. And the desire of all nations will come. 
And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The desire of nations, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. But when will that happen? When will God restore his people? Well, it will happen when he shakes the heavens and the earth. But the message in Zechariah is that the nations are at rest. So they would have known that this was not the time when God was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He would have known that this was not the time. So this was not a good message to the children of Israel. God, before he restores, will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And of course, the writer to the Hebrews knows that Haggai's prophecy is a reference to the second coming. He knows what prophecy is and that these blessings will take place in a time to come when the Lord Jesus Christ will come. And we see the angelic ministers here uh, come back and report that all the earth is at peace and uh, is at rest. And that's bad news to the children of Israel. You think of the promises that were given to uh, uh, Abraham. And so in the 12th chapter of the prophet of Zechariah, we have the Lord's Prayer in the Old Testament. O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these three score years? And you wonder why the Lord there is asking the question, but we think of what it says about the second coming, the day in the, the, the Lord, uh, he said, the day in the hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but the Father uh, only. So the question is asked, how long? How long? They've come to the point where they wonder how long it will be ere these things take place. So we have seen the vista provided by Christ. But then look at the vicinity of Christ. Here he is standing among the myrtle trees. And as we said, the myrtle tree is taken as a picture of Israel here, the Lord's people. And we see him now. Where is he? He's in the midst. And you think of the many times when there has been trouble and darkness. And God comes and stands in the midst of his people. You think of John on the Isle of Patmos. And we think of the vision that John had of the Lord walking in the midst of the candlesticks. He's always in the midst of his people. When the disciples were discouraged and when the uh, resurrection had taken place, we think of how the Lord came and stood in the midst amongst his people. And where two or three are met together in his name, there he is in the midst. And he's in the midst of his people, uh, his covenant people down through the angels, or through the ages. He works in the midst. We see in Isaiah 55 and 12, instead of the thorns shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briars shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name. 
for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And he's speaking there instead of the thorn and the briar, there'll be the fir tree and the myrtle tree. And here's the Lord's working. And we remind him that when the Lord comes in the midst, he is mighty. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. And we thank God today that he comes to work in the midst. And then his word is, uh, is in the midst. It says uh, in verse 9, The Lord there is called the angel that talked with me. And look at verse 13, And the Lord answered the angel, that talk with me with good words and comfortable words. And you'll notice that the Lord Jehovah here speaks to the angels. And you might, there's a debate amongst the commentators whether that uh, angel is the angel of the Lord. But we know that the Trinity speak among one another and so on. And I do believe that it is the Lord. And he comes with the word of peace. Remember when he came amongst his disciples, he said, Peace be unto you. And my, what a wonderful thing it is that we have the Saviour. He comes in the day of darkness. He comes in the day of shame. And he stands in the midst of his people. That's the good words and the comfortable words. And then look at the vigour of Christ here. We have the vista of Christ. We have something there of the vicinity of Christ. He's in the midst. But look at the vigour of Christ. The whore or the um, man on the horse there is symbolical of power in those days. He's on a horse and he's a troop behind him. And it says that behind him were red horses speckled and white. And notice the characteristics of the troop. He represents the mighty God. There's the troop of horses and the Lord at the head of them. And my what power there is. My here he is. The one in the midst of his people. Who comes with power. And demonstrates that power. In this day. And in a day to come. Look at the colours of the truth. Not only the characteristics. But we see something of the colours there. The red. Uh, probably speaks there. As representative judgment. Or blood. Or vengeance. And we think of uh, the angelic rider here, the red horse, and the one who is uh, spoken of in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 4. And we read that power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And we think of it in Isaiah 63 of the one whose uh, garments are dyed red and broad. It speaks of uh, judgment here. And then there is the horse which is speckled or uh, bay. If you have a margin it says that it is bay. And again there is a lot of speculation about that colour. But it seems to be a combination of the red of the first horse and the white of the last horse. And so there's this combination. White speaks there. It would speak of victory and glory and triumph. So there's the combination of the victory and the glory and the triumph and the judgment uh, that is there. There's something of mercy there in the white. 
So there is these horses that come after and they all convey the thought of God's power in judgment, in rule, even in mercy, in triumph. And he comes, he's strong on behalf of his people. Look to at the commission of the troops. Look at verse 11. He said, they said, we have walked to and fro through the earth. And behold, all the earth set us still and is at rest. So this angelic troop have been all around the earth. They've been going through the whole earth. And that's a consolation to the people of God. My, you think of the devil like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. In the book of Job, we read that then Satan answered the Lord and said that uh, from going to and forth on the earth and from walking up and down in it. So the devil is going about walking up and down through the earth. But now here is this angelic troop and they are going up and down walking through the earth. So all of this are good words and comforting words. In the midst of the darkness, God is still there. In the midst of the darkness, God is still working out his plans and his purposes. He has a purpose for Israel. He has a purpose for his people. And he comes with power to make sure that what he has said, he will do. And my, what a wonderful thing as we sit here even in this day that we serve the same God today who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. But then let's come to the second vision here. This is the four carpenters or the four horns. And I want you to look, this is from verse 12 on there, or verse 18 on, I should say. And you'll see the vision there. Look at verse 18. Then lifted I up mine eyes and saw and behold four horns. And the interpreting angel uh, told them that these four horns had scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. Now what are the four horns? Well they're not musical horns. They're animal horns. They are horns of various animals that are representative. And it says in verse 21, it describes them as the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So the four horns represent various Gentile nations that have dominated and scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem over the years. Now, in Scripture, again, horns represent Gentile powers. In Daniel 8, verses 20 and 21, we have the interpretation of Daniel's vision about the ram and the goat. And he says, The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So the rough goat with the great horn represented Alexander the Great. In Revelation 7 and 12, we have the interpretation of John's vision of the end time beast. And we read, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings, one hour with the uh, beast. So again, representative of Gentile anti-Christian powers. 
But let's just focus, or I'm going to focus tonight upon the four carpenters that are set over against the four horns. And we read about them in verse 20. He says, And the Lord showed me four carpenters. These are four workmen. And the question is asked, what did they do? And verse 21 gives the answer. These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter them. So these four carpenters fray the horns that have been persecuting and scattering Israel. The word fray there is a word that means to frighten. They put fear in the hearts of these people, these Gentile powers. They frighten them. And here were Israel that faced opposition. They had faced difficulties. They had faced fierce uh, opposition against them. The work of God had been successfully brought to a halt for 15 years. But what an encouragement it is here that God was going to send these carpenters who would put fear in their heart. And you think of how God has preserved Israel down through the years. Hegel was a philosopher. He is one of the uh, founding figures, it's said, of Western philosophy. And he once made reference to the Jews. And he said, it is a dark and troublesome enigma to me. I am not able to understand it. It does not fit any of our categories. It is a riddle. So he felt that the existence of the Jews, that their survival of all of these persecution, to him it was a riddle. The Nicholas Berdyev, the Russian philosopher, commented about the Jewish national survival. He said, according to the materialistic and positivistic criterion, this people ought long ago to have perished. Its survival is a mysterious and wonder phenomenon, demonstrating that the life of this people is governed by special predetermination, transcending the process of adaption expounded by the materialistic interpretation of history, the survival of the Jews, their resistance to destruction, their endurance under absolutely peculiar conditions, and the faithful rule played by them in history, all these point to the particular and mysterious foundations of their destiny. So that's what a Russian philosopher said. And that's what God is saying in this vision. God has preserved his people. And what Hegel and what Berdyaev were saying in materialistic sort of scientific terms, God is saying here, he says, I, there, there, there are these horns that are going to push against you. There are going to be these Gentile powers that are going to put you down. But I am going to preserve you. You think of what we read in the 54th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah in the ninth and 10th verses for this is like the waters of Noah unto thee for as I have sworn the waters of Noah shall no more go over the earth 
so have I sworn that I will not be angry with thee nor rebuke thee, for the mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed, the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord who has mercy on thee. In other words, the mountains may go and the hills may go, but Israel will not go. We turn to Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36. And you can turn to it, but it says, Thus saith the Lord, who giveth a sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and of the stars for light by night, who divideth the sea when its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances, the moon and the stars he's talking about, if those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, there you have the national survival of Israel. Hegel was astonished by it, and um, Berdiaf was astonished by it. But here is what the Word of God says. There are the horns that are coming against uh, the Jewish people. But God says, no, there's something there. I have those that are going to stand. I have my carpenters. I have my workmen. Now, let's just think about these carpenters for a few minutes. Let me think about, let's just think about the number of them. There are four carpenters. And there were four horns. That means that there are, there's sufficient there. You see, God's not taken by surprise. God doesn't lack the resources. There are four horns, so God has four carpenters. God has, God is never out man. God is never out God. We think of in this day how the world seems to be hijacked by the agenda, the anti-Christian agenda that we have all around us and we need to be politically correct and it seems that people have power and all the rest and it seems hard to counteract the power but God has his power. So we notice that there are sufficient here, there are four carpenters to stand against the four horns. Not only are they sufficient, but they are successful. Look at verse 21. He says, But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Israel, to scatter it. Now, there, we, we take the four carpenters um, to be first Cyrus, who overthrew Babylon, then Alexander the Great, who overthrew Persia. Then we have Rome, who overthrew Greece. And then the last carpenter <laughs> is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who comes to overthrow the resurrected Rome at the end of the age. Messiah's kingdom will smash the uh, Gentile kingdom, as it were, the kingdom of Antichrist. And we think of the stone cut out without hands in the prophecy of Daniel. And he will overthrow the power of Antichrist. He, he is sufficient. 
He, there, there is sufficient there, but also they are successful. We see their number. But look at their necessity. These four carpenters are needed. Why? Because there is a war to be fought. He says, I said that these four carpenters are come to fray or frighten the four horns. So there's a necessity for this to take place. Look at verse 21. They are the horns of the Gentiles which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So these Gentile nations are in opposition to Jerusalem and to Judah. But now God here comes to lift up his people who are going to, those that he's going to use in fraying and frightening those who come against them. And we think of the four horns, they represent the kingdoms there, the kingdoms that are mentioned in Daniel chapter 2. But we, we think of the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and so on. But here is God, and he comes at the end of times. And he comes to try and to purge. And he comes uh, to triumph at the end of the age. You think of the Babylonians and carried the people captive, the Persians that are holding them captive had stopped the work of God. But God comes to overrule at the end of the day. And so will it be with every anti-Christian force. He raised up his people. God always raised up his people in the day. He raised up Esther in the day when there was the attack of wicked Haman. God has always raised up people, even down through history. You think of um, the uh, attack on the deity of Christ and God raised up Athanasius. Or we think of how uh, there was the Arianism that entered into the church and God uh, raised up um, his um, Augustine in that day, or the Pelagianism. And we think of the enemies that have come against the work and the witness of God. But God has his witness, if we refer to them as his carpenters, his workmen. We think of the warfare that has to be engaged in. But then there's a necessity for these workmen because there's a work to be done. The whole thrust of these powers here these, is to push against the children of the people of Judah to stop the work of God. And that was the case in Zechariah's day and it is still the same today. How the devil would want to frighten us. But God sends his people to frighten them. And then there's a need for the carpenters. Not only is there a warfare to be fought and a work to be done, but there's a will to be strengthened. Because the people of God here, they're discouraged. Look at verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against whom thou hast indignation? These three score and ten years. And that's a reflection of the fact that the people of God were weary. They were in despair. But God comes and assures them that he's in control. 
He's in control. And he will strengthen them. He will give them the strength that is needed. And we come. They come. These men have symbolical skill. They are carpenters. And the word carpenters is karash there. It is a, an artificer in wood or iron or stone or any of these things. But they're craftsmen. They are men that God has given skill to. They are men that he's going to use. He's going to use these men to build his kingdom. To build his kingdom. The destructive power of the horns. But the structure that is brought by these craftsmen. To build and to give God the glory at the end of the day. And they will terrify the horns. But they will also triumph over the horns. My God has the victory at the end of the day. We rejoice in the good words and the comfortable words. God comes to encourage his people in these days. He comes because he's the God of victory and the God who is able to give exceeding abundantly above all it can ask or think. But just one last thought, and I'm cutting out a lot here actually, even as I'm going along, but look at verse 3, one last thought. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. When will the success start? When we turn to the Lord. When we turn to the Lord. How we need to turn to the Lord. God is in control. God is sovereign in control of all these things. He knows the end from the beginning. He has his carpenters, his workmen. He has his horsemen that go through all the earth. And are able to counter what the devil is doing. But how he wants his people to turn unto him. Turn ye unto me saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you. Blessings start when God's people turn to him. Oh, may we, with all our hearts, turn to God and remember the good words and comfortable words in the midst of the dark of the night and when we're in the shady place, God comes in the midst the God of victory and the God of power. Let's just bow, please, in a word of prayer. Our loving God and our gracious Father, we do thank thee for the good and comfortable words that come from thy precious word. We're glad, Lord, that when the children of Israel were in a dark day and when they were in a shady place, God came and stood in the midst. No God, we thank thee that he's still with his people Israel and he's still with his people even in this day. And we thank thee that God is in control. We serve a sovereign God who will come again. And we thank thee for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come again and destroy the kingdom of Antichrist at the end of the age. And Lord, we thank thee 
that thou art the great victor at the end of time. Lord, bless and give us encouragement even as we go from this place tonight. And Lord, may we behold a man. Lord, even as Zechariah was told at the start of the message, behold a man, our, our uh, man, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we look to him and be encouraged tonight for Jesus' sake. Amen.